Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. It was a cold winter morning in Cleveland, Ohio when a teenage girl vanished after getting on a public transit bus to take her to school. Her parents didn't learn she was missing until later that afternoon. Her disappearance sparked a massive search and would lead to calls for safer streets and for new legislation when it comes to schools reporting children as absent. It would also lead many parents to question if their child was safe when traveling to school alone. And ponder what kind of monsters could be lurking around abandoned buildings. Aliana DeFries was a 14-year-old girl from Cleveland, Ohio. She was a 7th grader at E-Prep and Village Prep Woodland Hills, where she was known as a gentle and kind girl. Each morning, she would burst through the doors of the classroom and greet her classmates in a sing-song voice, which she knew would put everybody in a great mood for the day ahead. Aliana lived at home with her mother, Denisha Cooper, and her two-year-old brother. Denisha separated from Aliana's father, Damon DeFries, when Aliana was younger, but she remained close with both parents. On weekends, she loved nothing more than curling up on the sofa with a good movie. In particular, she loved Frozen and Finding Nemo, and she had an impressive collection of Glitz dolls. The 26th of January, 2017, started out like any regular day for Aliana. Her mother, Denisha, walked her to the 3400 block of East 149th Street. Here, Aliana climbed onto a public transit bus that would take her to school. Denisha waved Aliana off, fully expecting to see her daughter home that afternoon. A couple of hours later, Denisha called the school to speak with a dean about an upcoming parent-teacher conference. Midway through the call, Denisha was informed that Aliana had not arrived at school that morning. An overwhelming sense of fear overcame her as she informed the dean that she had walked her daughter to the bus stop and had seen her climb on the bus safe and well. Denisha was frantic and immediately reported her only daughter missing. The first point of action for investigators was to try and ascertain where exactly Aliana had vanished from. They knew she had gotten on the bus, but where did she get off? Security footage from the bus would provide an answer. Aliana was captured getting off the bus at East 93rd and Kinsman and crossing the street at approximately 6.50 a.m. Typically, Aliana would take the 20-minute bus ride, but then she had to transfer to another bus to continue her way to school. To get to this other bus, she would walk past a number of dilapidated houses, something that had become a common feature in Cleveland over the years. From here, the teenager was spotted on closed-circuit television walking in the direction of a nearby McDonald's. But from that point, her whereabouts was elusive. Based on closed-circuit TV, Aliana never made it to the McDonald's, and she never made it to school. Somewhere along the way, she vanished. 
A missing persons report described Aliana as five foot two inches tall and about 119 pounds. Cleveland police had patrol officers, detectives, and a lieutenant assigned to the case, and eventually the Cleveland FBI was called in to assist. They canvassed the neighborhoods and spoke with residents to see if anyone could provide any further insight into her whereabouts. You see, Aliana had intellectual disabilities, which made her extremely trusting of people, and she could be easily persuaded. As her aunt Ariel Bell said, "She's never been in any kind of trouble. There's no reason for her to run away from home. So this is very, very unlike her. The fact that she's been gone this long." It's never happened before. Aliana was on a special education track at school and acted much younger than her fourteen years. While other girls her age were toying around with makeup and chatting about boys, Aliana still played with dolls and children's toys. Her school, E Prep and Village Prep Woodlands Hill, is a breakthrough school. All of the breakthrough schools used a recently implemented automated phone call and message system. To notify parents when a child is absent, the investigation into Aliana's disappearance revealed that when she had failed to show up to school that morning, the school had used the message system to inform her family of her absence. However, due to a software malfunction, the message was never delivered, meaning Denisha didn't know Aliana was a no-show until much later when she phoned the school. A spokesperson for the school said they were heartbroken to discover that an error in their system led to the delay in Denisha being notified of Aliana's absence, and said they would be making manual attendance calls until they had full confidence in the software being used. They announced that they would also be investigating why this glitch had occurred. The search for Aliana focused on the area between where she got off the first bus. And where she would have walked to get the second bus. Two days into this search, investigators were looking through an abandoned house on Fuller Avenue when they came across the body of a girl that matched Aliana's description. The home was just around the corner from where she had left the bus. This house was enveloped in crime scene tape, and the body was transported to the medical examiner's office for a cause of death to be determined, and for a positive identification to be made. Just the following day, medical examiner Thomas Gilson said during a news conference that the body found was consistent with that of Aliana. However, he said he would not definitively identify the body until more DNA and fingerprint comparisons were complete. It wouldn't be long until the remains were positively identified as Aliana. The medical examiner's office would also announce that her death was being treated as a homicide. Disturbingly, Aliana had been beaten and stabbed to death. The FBI and the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation were called in to assist in the case, while a twenty-two thousand five hundred dollar reward was put forward for information that could lead to Aliana's killer. They held a press conference during which they were asked by a member of the public if a serial killer was stalking the community. Police Chief Calvin Williams replied that they were going to be comparing evidence in this case to evidence in other cases for commonalities. The area where Aliana's body was found was an extremely rundown area with abandoned homes dotted throughout the neighborhoods. 
Cleveland Councilman Zach Reed said he feared that the discovery of Aliana may signal a trend. He stated, This is the fifth body found near the 93rd Street Corridor since 2012. Four of the bodies have been dumped in vacant lots or abandoned houses. Police tell me there's no obvious connection between the murders, but I'm not so sure. How do we know that we don't have another serial killer out there? The councilman certainly had reason to fear the worst. In the years preceding Aliana's murder, there had been two infamous crime sprees. In 2009, Anthony Sowell was arrested in Cleveland, and the bodies of 11 women were discovered at his home on Imperial Avenue. While in 2013, Ariel Castro was arrested after abducting and holding three women captive for over a decade before one of the women managed to escape. On February 1st, the community held a vigil for Eliana. Residents rallied behind her heartbroken family as they gathered on Fuller Avenue, near where the body was discovered. Her aunt, Ariel Bell, said, Our family is so broken. We cannot understand how someone could be so evil, so monstrous to a child. She was just a baby. She didn't deserve this. She didn't deserve to go with no family there, all alone in this house, cold. 4th District Police Commander Brandon Cutts was in attendance and told the crowd that they were working alongside the FBI to try and seek justice for Aliana. They were in the process of reviewing closed-circuit television footage from around the area, as well as conducting sweeps in the neighborhood to speak with anybody who may have seen Aliana or may have seen something suspicious. Just the following day, it was announced that there had been an arrest in her case. At 7.15 p.m., 44-year-old Christopher Whitaker had been arrested on Mayfield Road in Mayfield Heights and taken into custody on charges of kidnapping and aggravated murder. Cleveland Police Chief Calvin Williams announced that Whitaker had been identified as the suspect in the murder through evidence discovered at the medical examiner's office. However, they didn't immediately elaborate on what that was. Media outlets would scramble to try and uncover more about the main suspect in the grim murder. As it would soon be publicly revealed, Whitaker had a lengthy criminal record. In 1996, he was charged with burglary and later pleaded guilty to criminal trespass after he crawled through a window to steal a television in Maple Heights. The resident was in the home and fled outside. Three years later, he was convicted of breaking into the home of a family member and stealing her car. His records would also show that he was a convicted sex offender who had registered with the sheriff's deputies at the same address for years. However, it would show that sheriff's deputies had not gone to his address to verify he was still living there since early 2015. Whitaker had been placed on the sex offender's registry in 2005 after he choked, sexually assaulted, and then stabbed a woman in the neck with scissors in Bedford Heights. In that case, he had called the woman several times throughout the night before going to her apartment and asking if he could use her restroom. The 45-year-old woman let Whitaker into her apartment. He entered her bathroom and then emerged with a pair of scissors. He was initially charged with attempted murder and rape, but then struck a plea deal for sexual battery and felony assault and a four-year prison sentence. 
His most recent conviction stemmed from a 2013 burglary. In that case, he broke into his ex-girlfriend's home on Ledgewood Drive in Bedford and stole three televisions, a CD player, a fax machine, a computer, a washer, and a cell phone. The woman reported that Whitaker had also stolen her car. Several days after the robbery, Whitaker called the woman and threatened to kill her unless she recanted her statement to police. He pleaded guilty to grand theft and was initially sentenced to two years on probation. However, he violated this probation by taking drugs and was sentenced instead to six months in jail. Following his release, Whitaker continued to call and threaten the woman. He also threatened her on social media, sending her messages and threatening to kill her family. His records would also show that he certainly knew the area where Eliana's body had been found. He had lived in an apartment just steps away from the abandoned home where her body was recovered. As Whitaker was being interrogated, calls would be made for a new state law that would require that schools notify parents immediately if their child is absent from school. Under the current laws, schools weren't required to do this. They had to decide on their own whether they notified a parent when their child did not show up to school. Keisha Taylor, a Cleveland Heights mother, created a petition calling for a law which she wanted to name an Aliana alert. State Senator Sandra Williams, who represented District 42, which was where Aliana disappeared from, announced that she would start the process of drafting a new law. She stated, This could be a first step to helping the parent take action before something happens. On the Saturday after Whitaker's arrest, a march was organized by Black on Black Crime Incorporated, which was an African-American federation association who worked as a support group for families affected by violence. They wanted to thank the Cleveland police officers from the 4th District for the diligent work done to identify and arrest a suspect in Aliana's murder. A crowd gathered at Cleveland's 4th District Police Headquarters, where they were greeted by police officers. They shook hands, exchanged hugs, and cried together. They then marched to the abandoned home where Aliana's body was discovered. They brought along stuffies, flowers, and trinkets, and placed them outside the derelict residence. As one mourner said, they wanted Aliana to know they all loved her and were showering her with love. However, Aliana's grandmother, Evelyn Day, requested that the teddy bears and toys instead be distributed to children in the neighborhood. The abandoned home had become a makeshift memorial, but understandably, while the items were left with love, her family didn't want the home to be a place where Aliana was to be remembered. They said they appreciated the outpouring of support, but they wanted their girl to be remembered in the places that she loved, not at the house where she was murdered. They asked that the teddy bears and toys be distributed to children, or for them to be left at her school or any other place that Aliana loved. Meanwhile, Whitaker appeared at court for his arraignment. The prosecutor would reveal more insight into the murder. He accused Whitaker of following Aliana from the bus stop that morning. He stated that Whitaker kidnapped and brutally assaulted and murdered her, taking the life of a beautiful little girl. He said that this, combined with Whitaker's lengthy criminal record, were indicators that a high bond was necessary. Whitaker's public defender, Antonio Nicholson, opposed the bond, 
stating that a $1 million bond would be more appropriate because his client was most likely not going to get out of jail anyway. Ultimately, Judge Michael Slewinski set Whitaker's bond at $3 million. As talk of a serial killer quivered in the air, it was announced that Whitaker's DNA would be tested against DNA in the CODIS Cold Case Crimes Database. There were a number of unsolved murders of women in Cleveland, and some speculated that Whitaker could have been involved. The murder of Aliana was extremely brutal, and some feared that she may not have been his first victim. Cleveland Councilman Zach Reed cited four unsolved murders along East 93rd that they wanted to look into. Jasmine Trotter and Ashley Lazinski were murdered between the 22nd of March and the 28th of May in 2013, and both were discovered within a mile and a half from where Aliana was found. Christine Malone was found murdered on the 23rd of March in a building about two blocks from where Aliana was found, and then Jamila Hayson was found murdered on the 17th of December, 2012, in an abandoned home about half a mile from where Aliana was recovered. However, it was quickly determined that when two of these murders had occurred, Whitaker was in jail, while in the other two cases, he was days away from being arrested on burglary charges. Furthermore, his DNA did not come back as a match to any unsolved case in which DNA was collected. Following the announcement, Cleveland Councilmember Zach Reed said he did not regret sparking fears of a serial killer and revealed that in the past, he had actually reported to police the smell of dead bodies near the home of Anthony Sowell. Despite his report, Sowell was not investigated until much later. He said, It's still disconcerting that there are four unsolved murders of women on East 93rd. We need to find out what is the lure to 93rd and why do these horrific crimes happen here? Why do they feel they can come here and do that? Aliana's family now had the crushing task of preparing her funeral. The community had truly come together to try and bring her home safely, but when that was shattered, they came together to seek justice and provide support and love for her family. Her family announced that her funeral and wake were going to be open to the public and asked that if anybody wanted to send flowers to send them to Lucas Funeral Home in Garfield Heights. The wake was scheduled for 12 noon at New Spirit Revival Center in Cleveland Heights on the 11th of February, and her funeral would be held immediately afterward. However, days later, it was announced that her family would need to find a new venue for the funeral, after the New Spirit Revival Center said they didn't have enough staff to open the event center, and that there was some kind of hiccup in getting funds for the funeral from the GoFundMe account, which was set up after her body was discovered. Her cousin, Heather Hall, said that the church said they would hold the space and they could pay them on the Wednesday when the funds were released. However, they called on Tuesday demanding payment before saying the space was no longer available. As if the family didn't have enough to be worrying about. But thankfully, the Amani Temple Ministries on North Taylor Road stepped up to the plate and offered their venue and their services free of charge. Thomas Bodie, the operations director, said, That's what we do as a church. When the community needs us, we're there for them. The Amani Temple Ministries wasn't the only church to offer help in the wake of Aliana's murder. In fact, 
her murder would raise concerns about the safety of students either walking or using public transport to and from school and would prompt patrols. Mount Pleasant Ministerial Alliance would launch a Safe Schools initiative, which consisted of pastors from different churches in the area patrolling a strip of East 93rd Street as children went to and from school. A number of these pastors spoke with the Cleveland News. They were hoping to recruit at least 25 churches to participate in the program so that they could have a rotating schedule to ensure that schools had patrols every morning for the forthcoming months. A lot of parents don't have the luxury of taking their child to and from school each day, and this patrol would put parents' minds at ease. On the 11th of February, Aliana's funeral was held. Police escorted her body from the Lucas Funeral Home to the Amani Temple Ministries. Her casket was situated at the front of the church, surrounded by flowers and photographs. The praise dancers from the Cleveland School of the Arts paid tribute with a dance, while Aliana's aunt read out a letter written in her memory by her grandfather. It poignantly read, The fourteen years you were here, you gave me and your grandmother so much happiness. How you made your grandpa laugh when he was down, and teased him, how I'm going to miss all of the warm and loving hugs you gave me. Many attendees wore purple, which was her favorite color, and afterward she was buried in a private ceremony, only attended by family. And listeners, we'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Getting to know yourself can be a lifelong process. After all, your relationship with yourself is the most important relationship in your life. Therapy is all about deepening your self-awareness and understanding. Speaking with a BetterHelp counselor can bring a better understanding of who you are and what you want out of life. If you're thinking of therapy... BetterHelp is a great option. BetterHelp is convenient, flexible, and entirely online. I used BetterHelp during a challenging period of my life, and I learned it's important to have flexible treatment options. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to be matched with a licensed therapist. You can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com gone today and get 10% off your first month. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash gone. Feel better today with BetterHelp. Just the day after Aliana's funeral, prosecutors announced they would be seeking the death penalty against Whitaker, adding that more charges had been filed against him, including rape, kidnapping, offenses against a human corpse, burglary, and tampering with evidence. Whitaker would subsequently plead not guilty to all of the charges. Toward the end of the month, Denisha spoke publicly for the first time about the loss of her daughter. She was holding Aliana's favorite stuffy. As she said, I don't understand how anyone can take away a sweet, innocent child like Aliana. She said that she would be going to every court hearing so that Whitaker could see her face, adding that while she hated to say it, She wanted Whitaker to suffer for what he did to her daughter. Denisha also said she didn't like her daughter getting a public transit bus to and from school each day, but she felt a bit more confident in knowing that the bus stop was in front of Cleveland's 4th District Police Station. Aliana's body was found just two blocks away. Denisha and her mother said they were calling for more school buses in the area 
so children don't need to rely on public transit. Throughout the city, there were children just like her daughter getting a public transit bus to and from school each morning, and many were walking to these buses and getting on these buses in the winter when it was still pitch black outside. The Cleveland School District provides busing for students in pre-kindergarten through sixth grade for those who live more than a mile away from school, while private schools offer a limited school bus transport for the students. Other children, however, have to rely on public transportation. Sadly, for Denisha, on top of the inconsolable grief of losing her daughter, she was now living in a homeless shelter after her landlord stopped paying for running water. She moved in with relatives, and a church group said that they would put together a drive to collect funds to help Denisha and her two-year-old son. The following month, Senator Sandra Williams proposed a truancy bill, which would require schools to contact parents immediately if a child is absent. The proposed law, called Aliana Alert, was introduced to the state capitol, and Denisha was there at the introduction and detailed her daughter's disappearance to the Senate Education Committee and said that if she had been properly informed, the search for her daughter would have started a lot sooner. The murder trial began almost a year to the day that Aliana vanished. Outside of court, her father, Damon, said he did not want to be in the same room as Whitaker, and said that no verdict or sentence would bring him closure. He said that time supposedly heals all wounds, but this was a wound that would never heal. During opening statements, prosecutors said that Aliana was still alive when most of the injuries were inflicted, adding that Whitaker had confessed to the murder to investigators during a recorded interview. This interview would be played during the trial. Whitaker's defense team said he would not be denying the charges against him. Instead, defense attorney Thomas Shaughnessy said they would be focusing on the penalty phase of the trial and would be trying to save Whitaker from a death sentence. One of the first to take the stand was Denisha, and she spoke proudly of her daughter and said she wasn't a typical teenager because she acted much younger and still enjoyed things that young children would enjoy. She took the jury through the last morning of Aliana's life. They followed their typical weekday routine. Denisha described how she had walked Aliana to the bus stop at about 6.30 that morning. Aliana was wearing her school uniform, and she kissed her mother on the cheek before boarding the bus. This was the last time that Denisha ever saw her daughter. Her voice quivered with emotion as she described the flurry of fear and panic which overtook her when she learned that her daughter had not shown up for school that morning. Following her testimony, closed-circuit TV footage would be presented which prosecutors said showed the moment that Aliana encountered Whitaker just before her murder. This footage taken at 7 a.m. at the True Gospel Missionary Baptist Church on East 93rd at Fuller Avenue. It captured Whitaker pacing along the street for several hours, and then showed Aliana being stopped by Whitaker outside the church. She can be seen taking a step back from him. He then followed her northbound up the street. A short time later, footage captured Whitaker leading Aliana through a field toward Fuller Avenue, near where her body would be found days later. Cleveland police officer Willie Hodges testified that he and his partner were assigned to check vacant homes in the area 
near where Aliana had vanished. When they approached the house where her body would be found, they noticed that the back door was laying wide open. When they entered the home, they noticed a trail of blood leading from the living room toward a closed door. He told the jury that his partner then kicked open the door, and they saw her small body, naked except for a pair of socks. She was laying in a puddle of blood, and it was evident that she had sustained wounds to the back of her head and to her eye. He testified, It definitely looked like she was dragged from one room to the other and just thrown in the other room. They also found her clothing and school bag inside the home, as well as bloody tools, including a drill, box cutter, and a hammer. It was revealed during the trial that these tools had been used to inflict a number of fatal wounds on the girl. The tools had been entered as evidence, and Assistant Prosecutor Mahmoud Adwala presented them to the jury. They were shown a Black & Decker drill, a Phillips-head screwdriver, a nut driver, and a box cutter, as well as bloody pieces of Aliana's school uniform and her bra. They were then shown graphic photographs of puncture wounds to Aliana's face and head, which matched the tools. He said that the drill matched four puncture wounds to Aliana's cheek and a wound to her forehead, which dislodged her right eyeball from its socket. The box cutter also matched several wounds to Aliana's neck. He revealed that a number of the wounds showed signs of healing, which indicated that Aliana was alive for several hours after these wounds were inflicted. Her cause of death had already been publicly released, but nobody knew the full extent of her murder, and it was more disturbing than anyone could have ever imagined. Medical examiner Dr. David Dolanak, who performed the autopsy on Ileana, would take the jury through the plethora of injuries inflicted on her. He said that there were so many severe injuries that they could not identify which one specifically caused her death. He also said that her injuries were consistent with the tools that were found in the abandoned home. Jerry Oblock, a DNA analyst, then told the jury that Whitaker's DNA was found on her body. A bloody footprint was also found inside the home, which matched Whitaker's shoes. It would be revealed during the trial that on the morning of the murder, Whitaker had helped David Bruton, the assistant pastor at Gogotha Missionary Baptist Church on East 93rd Street, unload food pantry items from a truck at the church. He testified during the trial and said that Whitaker seemed calm, although he did tell him that he had been working odd jobs and was frustrated that things weren't going right for him. His testimony would be followed by testimony from 19-year-old Kenneth Chambers. Chambers said he witnessed the abduction of Ileana. He lived in the area and was waiting for the bus when he saw a man grab her as she walked along East 93rd Street near Fuller Avenue. He said his first thought was to call police, but then he decided against it because he was unsure of the relationship between the two people. The prosecution would present a videotaped confession as evidence. Initially, Whitaker had repeatedly changed his version of events that morning. He first of all claimed that he had been inside the abandoned home doing crack cocaine with other people, but said he had nothing to do with her murder. Investigators continued to press Whitaker for more information before they revealed they had linked him to Aliana's body via DNA. Whitaker realized there was no way to get out of this one and admitted that he had killed her. He stated that he was high on crack at the time of the murder and his memory was hazy. 
During the videotaped confession, Whitaker said that people were going to look at him like he was some kind of monster, but said that he wasn't a monster, but instead a drug addict who made a mistake. At one point, he appeared more concerned about his own reputation and told the investigators he didn't want his face plastered across the news. The defense presented no evidence and no witnesses, but that was to be expected due to the fact that they essentially said that Whitaker was guilty during their opening statements. During closing arguments, the prosecution reiterated their belief that Whitaker had been walking up and down the street, hunting for a victim when he came across Ileana. He said that he abducted her, took her to the abandoned house he had been to before, raped her, and then methodically used tool after tool to bring her life to a grisly end. Defense attorney Fernando Mack told the jury during their closing arguments that they had waved the white flag. There was nothing in the world that could justify what happened to that girl. He said that Whitaker never asked for a lawyer, voluntarily gave a sample of his DNA, and told police where to find the clothing he wore during the attack. He asked why, if Whitaker had acted methodically as the prosecution suggested, then why didn't he clean up the crime scene and get rid of the murder weapons? The jury was sent off to deliberate, and they would find Christopher Whitaker guilty on all ten counts. The sentencing phase would follow, and the jury would need to either recommend that Whitaker be sentenced to life in prison or be sentenced to death. His defense team wasted no time in attempting to save his life. They hired a psychologist who would say there were three major issues in Whitaker's life which led to the murder of Aliana. His mother died when he was just eight years old. He had no father figure, and he watched his older sister constantly being abused by her boyfriend. Dr. Robert Kaplan said that if those three things didn't happen, they wouldn't be where they were. Whitaker was the youngest of seven children. His father was absent through most of his life, but he was close with his grandparents. His mother died when he was eight years old. His older sister took over as the caring figure of the family, and she moved them to live with a great aunt in Cleveland out of fear that Child Protective Services would remove them. Social worker Cece McDonald said that within a matter of days, Whitaker's life was completely turned around. Shortly after the family moved to Cleveland, Whitaker's sister's boyfriend began to physically and verbally abuse her, and he had no shame in doing it in front of her siblings. According to the social worker, this left Whitaker feeling helpless to protect her and very likely desensitized him to violence. However, under cross-examination, the prosecution pointed out that all six of Whitaker's other siblings were exposed to the very same things that Whitaker was, yet none of them turned out the way he did. Eric Summers, Whitaker's older brother, would tell the jury that when growing up, Whitaker was very attached to his mother and was a bit of a loner. Eric said that he himself got involved in drugs and had tried to protect his brother from that life, but he was unsuccessful. He said the family tried to help Whitaker when his life began to spiral out of control. They tried to help him get a job, but he got involved with the Folks Gang, which was an offshoot of the Gangster Disciples. From 1996, Whitaker's trouble with the law began. Eric would say that while Whitaker spoke about his other crimes, while he accepted that he was guilty of the murder of Aliana, it was something he refused to speak about, telling people that when he thought about what he had done to her, it made him feel suicidal. 
Several other experts would testify that Whitaker's longtime addiction to crack cocaine had impaired his impulse control and decision-making. However, under cross-examination, the prosecution pointed out that while Whitaker was in prison before, he had racked up more than 40 rule violations. And there was no evidence that Whitaker was actually high on crack cocaine at the time of the murder, and that experts were taking his claims of being high at face value. A defense psychologist testified that Whitaker had dissociated from his actions, but a psychologist hired by the prosecution rebuffed this and said evidence did not show that and that he had changed his version of events several times and had even expressed a lack of remorse during a recorded phone call from jail. During that phone call, he had said, When I come walking out of this motherfucker, I'm going to tell everybody to kiss my ass. I ain't going to show no remorse, no nothing. On the second day of the sentencing phase, Whitaker was given the opportunity to speak. It was an unsworn statement which did not open him up to cross-examination. He read from a prepared statement and apologized to Aliana's family. I've admitted to my guilt, to the detectives, and to my lawyers. I asked my lawyers not to contest or challenge anything in this case because I really wanted the DeFreeze family to have closure. I apologize to the family and the community for my actions. There is no excuse for what I've done. I can't imagine the pain the family feels, but I know the pain I felt when I had to look at what I've done. Her family were also given the opportunity to provide impact statements before the sentence was handed down. Her father, Damon, he took the opportunity to address the issues regarding women and children being targeted by predators. You can hear the heartache in his voice. It takes a real monster to take a child who's going on her way happily to school. It happens too often. Every time I turn on the news, read the paper, there's a child missing. Not only child, there's men and women missing also. It gets frustrating. And nothing's being done about it. I know the officers you're doing, you, you can only do for so much. The administration at City Hall needs to address these issues. Like you addressed the renovation of the queue and like you addressed the Republican Convention. Our children mean a lot to us. They might not be your children, but they mean a lot to us. The 93rd is a safe haven for sexual predators like this monster behind me. And you're lucky I'm not the same person I was 25 years ago because there's not enough police in here to stop me. And you need to know that. And when you get where you're going, you're going to get what you got coming. Before you get to that gas, that lethal injection chamber. My baby didn't have a chance. No grandchildren. Can't walk her down the aisle. When she'd come over on the weekends, on Fridays, we'd have this same talk about this guy back here. I warned her of guys like that. I warned her of the abandoned buildings. I told her to watch out for these predators. I didn't want her catching two buses to school. I stressed that. This is what I get. 
she would talk to me, Daddy, you showed me how to fight. I'll be okay, Daddy. I said, baby, listen to me and quit running your mouth. Don't walk with your hood on your head. Don't have the earbuds in your ear. Be aware of your surroundings. She kept running her mouth and I grabbed her. I said, that's how it's gonna happen, Aliana. I said, that's how it's gonna happen. Now what you gonna do? Wow, Daddy, you scared me. I said, yeah. Lord, give me strength to continue on with this foundation to keep my mind right and my spirit right. Excuse me, so I can look at this bitch ass dude. You're addressing the court, Mr. DeFries, not I said opinion. enough. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Before the jury were sequestered to reach their recommendation, the prosecution said to the jury that the brutal circumstances of this murder should outweigh any of the mitigating factors. Prosecutor Awadala reminded the jury that Whitaker's confession only came after he was informed that his DNA was found on the body, and even then he claimed that she went to the abandoned home with him voluntarily, had sex with him consensually, and that he didn't remember using any of the tools on her body. He had also maintained to his family that he was innocent and expressed concern about his face being splashed across the news. He said, Do better than what Christopher Whitaker did to Aliana. Give him death, because that is better than what he did. Defense attorney Shaughnessy said that Whitaker's confession and expression of remorse, as well as his childhood, should be enough to spare his life. He also said that if they decided to impose a life sentence, Whitaker's life in prison would be void of hope, that child molesters and child killers were the lowest in the prison hierarchy, and that his life in prison would be lonely and even dangerous. The jury would now need to weigh whether the aggravating circumstances of the crimes outweigh the mitigating factors of Whitaker's childhood and drug addiction. They needed to reach a unanimous verdict which meant that if just one juror decided that a life sentence would be more appropriate, then his life would be spared. It took them just six hours to return with a recommendation. The jury determined that Whitaker should pay the ultimate price, death. Judge Carolyn Friedland read the jury's recommendation out in court, and it was now up to her to decide whether to impose the jury's recommendation of death or instead sentence Whitaker to life in prison. Ultimately, the judge would follow the jury's recommendation and sentence Christopher Whitaker to death. Outside of court, Aliana's family revealed they had been hoping Whitaker received a life sentence without parole. In the month after the sentencing phase, the Ohio sentence would pass the Aliana Alert, which required schools to notify parents within two hours if a student failed to arrive in class and does not have an excused absence. During a press conference, Senator Sandra Williams said, Time is a very important factor in finding a missing person. Senate Bill 82 does not aim to blame school districts for what happened to Aliana or other missing children across the state. It is simply designed to make sure that across Ohio, parents are made aware when their children are not in school and can take quick, necessary action to find them if they don't know where they are. The following month, E-Prep and Village Prep Woodland Hills planted a garden in her memory. In the garden is a boulder with Aliana's name etched into the surface and surrounded in purple flowers. Her father, Damon, said, It was a beautiful gesture established by the superintendent, John McBride, and his staff. 
We appreciate the students and all who were involved. It is beautiful, and it will always be her memory left there at school, and that means a lot. Shortly thereafter, 10 Cleveland police officers and investigators were honored at the annual Community Relations Awards Ceremony for their bravery and dedication to the case. In December, the abandoned home where Eliana was murdered was demolished, which brought some closure to her family. The next month, Aliana's parents filed a wrongful death suit targeting E-Prep and Village Prep Woodland Hills for not notifying them of their daughter's absence. The suit read, Defendants have tried to cover up their fatal inaction by claiming that they sent Aliana's mother a message notifying her of the absence, but the system malfunctioned. Upon information and belief, defendants' school system have lied about their action of sending a message. The lawsuit was seeking compensatory and punitive damages and relief for pain and suffering and more. Ultimately, the Ohio 8th Appellate District ruled in the school's favor and determined that they were not liable for Aliana's death. In April of 2019, the Aliana alert went into effect. Her family would also establish the Aliana DeFreeze Make a Change Foundation. Their goal is to provide transportation for children from families who are indigent, and who struggle to make ends meet. They also seek to demolish abandoned buildings throughout Cleveland or restore the buildings to livable conditions. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe. Be safe.